So this is just a quick summary of where I'm at right now at the very end of November, early December of 2020 with COVID treatment. I am not going to rehash this epidemic. And this really is meant for healthcare workers on the front line, especially those who are swamped and don't have a lot of time to sit and read right now. And especially for those who may be picking up a lot of these patients for the first time, meaning it's spreading in their community and the COVID teams are therefore expanding. So there's a lot of doctors and PAs and MPs and nurses who weren't having to take care of these patients, but their floors have expanded into COVID units. The other thing I just want to say up front is there are a lot of opinions of COVID management out there, and some have been very wrong, meaning the top ID doctors in the country, the top hospitalists, Fauci, who I very much respect and try and listen to everything he says, obviously flip-flopped on the masks, saying it wasn't needed at first. And now, as the science came out and shows that it helps, it doesn't stop the epidemic. So all those social media posts of, if masks work and shutdowns work, why isn't this stopping? Because they only help the issue. Not that I'm for shutdowns. That's a whole nother topic. But anyway... Fauci as well explained himself that in the beginning he really was trying to conserve PPE for the hospitals and didn't want everybody taking up all the masks and there were other reasons that I'm not going to rehash right now. And honestly, it doesn't really help with the management issues on the front line. So getting to the frontline management, I think one of the things we frequently see, although I have had COVID patients, that their sole issue, actually my very first COVID patient, the sole issue was GI, no respiratory issue. There was no hypoxia. There was no cough. His wife had had COVID. Then for two or three weeks, he completely lost his appetite, had a ton of diarrhea, which made me want to go out and buy a ton of toilet paper. But anyway, the point being is that this can present in a lot of ways, and sometimes it's not respiratory. But the biggest issue that we see in the hospital is usually hypoxia. Now, of course, there are other major issues, DIC and all these things that we may or may not get into today. Okay, so with hypoxia, obviously, almost everybody starts with nasal cannula oxygen. If you can get away with that, great. Probably much more than half of my patients, that's all they ever need. But there are so many hypoxic patients that a percentage of them are not going to get away just with nasal cannula oxygen. So often a next step is high flow nasal cannula oxygen. It increases the oxygen dose to the lungs and may provide a limited small amount of PEEP. High flow nasal cannula oxygen probably has little added aerosol risk and is more comfortable than BiPAP. That being said, there also is a percentage of patients that absolutely do need BiPAP, but usually I try and start with high flow nasal cannula oxygen, or if I need to immediately go to BiPAP, I try and then get them onto high flow nasal cannula oxygen if they seem to be somebody who might be able to tolerate it. And sometimes I'm transitioning more than once during the day, meaning at some points they're on BiPAP, at other times they're doing okay on high flow nasal cannula oxygen, then they need BiPAP for another hour, then they're able to get back on the high flow nasal cannula oxygen. And I expect a lot of you are seeing those kind of patients all the time. Okay, so when the patient is able, they can also consider self-proning to minimize shunting and less heart compression on the left lower lobe. However, it should be said that while self-proning often increases oxygenation and decreases work of breathing, 
it is not clear if self-proning reduces disease progression, and more important, not all patients can do it. I've had very obese patients who simply can't get on their belly. I've had plenty of geriatric patients who are confused and there's just no way that they're really going to be able to follow a recommendation of, hey, try going on your belly for a few hours and then you can sit up and try eating and going back on your belly and back on your back and back and forth. They just can't follow that because a lot of these patients have in-hospital delirium. First of all, they're very often completely isolated, which worsens delirium. Two, they're very sick. Three, we're usually giving them lots of steroids. So they have every reason to be confused and debilitated. But there is a subset of patients that can handle moving onto their belly and chest for a little bit and able to self-prone successfully. And there has been a subset of patients that has been, in my mind, very, very helpful in decreasing their work of breathing and helping their oxygenation at least to buy some time for hours, sometimes days. And as we know, sometimes everything fails. So we still have plenty of patients where intubation is needed. Again, talking about those flip-flops of expert recommendations, and I'm not holding this against anybody, but we all remember the first month or two or three of COVID where everybody was saying intubate early under controlled conditions, and we just crashed and killed all these patients. So now we're trying to not put people on the ventilator, but that doesn't mean that a lot of people still don't require intubation. Intubated COVID patients have a high mortality. People with a ton of comorbidities that may likely die whether they had COVID or not in the next three to six months, in my opinion, are not great candidates for being on a ventilator with COVID. But those are things you can debate amongst yourselves with your own care teams. Okay, inhaled vasodilator, so usually talking about nitric oxide, can be used when needed to preferentially direct blood flow to areas of the lung getting gas exchange and usually improves oxygenation in severe hypoxia. I'm going to say a few things about some items I don't actually read much about, but you may take them for what they're worth from my own experience. First would be fluid management and covid so very often early in COVID-19 hospitalizations, you actually need early fluid resuscitation if someone's hypotensive, hypoperfusing, or acute kidney injury or acute renal failure is present. After that initial phase, if those things are present, a lot of people do try and run their patients dry and keep their lungs dry, and I am one of those people. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know for sure. Um, ARDS, I'm just even going to put that completely aside. What I have noticed is, first of all, some people actually do, of course, have underlying CHF. They've had it before, or they have new onset CHF, maybe even a cardiomyopathy from COVID. The point is, a lot of people that get hospitalized have comorbidities. We know that, right? The sicker you are in general, the worse this disease tends to be for people. It's hard because sometimes the rails can be from the COVID itself. A lot of times, obviously, we do the typical things like check BMP and all those stuff. But listen, I can tell you I've had plenty of patients where I've even picked them up a few days into their hospitalization. I've given them 40, 80 of Lasix, and they went from 13 liters down to 6 liters. I haven't anybody go to zero, so it's not like they were all 100% CHF exacerbations. But my point is... 
occasionally giving some diuretic on the front line, in my experience, has helped. I can't give you any data on that, but it's just something to think about like you do with all patients in all situations is what is their fluid balance. Along those lines, I feel like a lot of people with COVID, like a lot of viruses, have set off a COPD exacerbation, viral set off of a COPD exacerbation. Probably one of the many, many reasons that corticosteroids work in this disease in our hypoxic patients. I'll give you another early example of a COVID patient I took care of because in the beginning, everybody's saying don't use corticosteroids because it will worsen viral replication, which still may be true very early in the course of COVID. But I really held out on a few patients, including some that were just wheezing terribly. I was trying things like albuterol, which wasn't doing a whole lot other than causing a lot of tachycardia. By the way, another point. I see a lot of scheduled albuterol, may just be regional, in patients who are not wheezing and it's not helping them and it's causing tachyarrhythmias like sinus tachycardia, VTAC, and atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular rate. And I think there's a few reasons for this. One, I think some people just throw albuterol anybody that's hypoxic and short of breath and isn't thinking is their actual constriction of the airways. Two, I think a lot of people aren't listening to their COVID patients every day. And I know even for the first few months in our hospital, there were some hospitalists that didn't do any exams for a few days purposefully on patients because we were so worried about getting infected, using up too much PPE. I was never one of those people. I've seen every single one of my patients every single day since the beginning when I've had COVID patients. But nevertheless, there were hospitalists that were FaceTiming or calling into the room, and there was all variations of this. Some of them would do that and then quickly go in and examine the patient. I'm okay with that too. My bigger point is that albuterol often is not the answer, but sometimes there are COPD exacerbations, and in those cases, you need nebulizers. You may need more corticosteroid than you're using. might not just stick with the 6 milligrams of Decadron which kind of gets us into the corticosteroid topic. I think everybody's aware of it by this time. The recovery trial that showed dexamethasone helped decrease mortality in patients with hypoxia and COVID. There's been other data sets, and I don't think it has to be dexamethasone every single time. And I'm not going to get deeply into corticosteroid use, as I think this is still unfolding, but let's say that as of right now in hospitalized patients with hypoxia, if anybody knows of another medication that decreases mortality other than corticosteroids as of this point in late November, early December, please email me. I'm happy to look at that data set. That's not to say other drugs haven't helped in other ways, but if you're purely talking about mortality, I don't know of them. Okay, remdesivir. World Health Organization just recently updated its guideline suggesting against remdesivir in hospitalized patients regardless of their disease severity. So what they were saying is that in the WHO opinion, again, this is not necessarily my opinion, that no effect on mortality. I do agree with them on that. And then they were saying that it had no effect on need for mechanical ventilation, time to clinical improvement, and other outcomes. Now, let me just say they are one organization and not everybody is there with them on that, except for I think everybody agrees it probably doesn't help mortality. 
but there is some data depending on the trial that you look at. Let's take, for example, ACTT1, the adapted COVID-19 treatment trial, in which remdesivir reduced the time to clinical recovery. The benefit of remdesivir was most apparent in hospitalized patients who only required supplemental oxygen. There was no observed benefit of remdesivir in those who are on high-flow oxygen, non-invasive ventilation, mechanical ventilation, or ECMO, but the study was not powered to detect differences within subgroups. By the way, I'm not even going to talk about ECMO because my facility doesn't have it, but that's just a tangent at the moment. And I want to stick with remdesivir for just a little bit. I'm not going to go down every trial, but like, let's say we take the ACTT1 trial often, something that is cited. I think it's important to note that the median time from symptom onset to randomization was nine days. And I suspect the earlier you get remdesivir as an antiviral, the better effect it's going to have. Meaning there's a lot of COVID patients that we hospitalize where viral replication is no longer their issue. Either it's not happening at all or it's not happening much compared to earlier in their course. And of course that gets into the whole inflammatory thing and the cytokine storms that some have, not everybody has that's really sick. But my guess is that probably earlier remdesivir, even though it's intravenous, so it's not really a convenient outpatient thing, is probably more helpful than it is for our hospitalized patients. Now, do I use it? Yeah, I've kind of given myself, and this is very arbitrary, about a 10-day cutoff. And so listen to me or don't listen to me on this. Again, I'm not saying there's any science behind this, and that's why I'm saying there's a lot of opinion out there, and you can listen to the so-called experts, which a lot of them are a lot smarter and some of them much more experienced than me, with the caveat that a lot of them have been wrong, admit that, and I'm going to be wrong about some of the things that I tell you. So anyway, I am using this kind of arbitrary 10 days where I feel like if they feel like their symptoms started less than 10 days ago, I tend to give them remdesivir. Does that mean that it should be people cut off at 8 days or 12 days or 15 days or 5 days? I'm really no expert to say, but that's just kind of how I have been doing it. What the World Health Organization's concern is that we're using a very expensive drug oftentimes inappropriately, and I think it's just like everything else in medicine. We see a lot of people in the past that would give Aricept to people who have every stage of dementia, including end-stage dementia. We see people that give antibiotics to people that clearly just have colds, sometimes already improving with colds, but couldn't get into the office for 48 hours, so we give them antibiotics to please them, to please their family, and I don't think remdesivir is one that we can justify using in every COVID patient all the time that's hospitalized. I certainly have not convinced all my colleagues of that, and I'm sure everywhere there are certain docs that are gonna use it for every single hospitalized patient. Hey, I'm not saying it's definitively the wrong thing to do, it's just not what I am doing. I can't justify in my own head just doing things just because I don't have a lot other to do, and that would mean I am doing something if I'm giving them remdesivir to make me happy or to make a patient or family happy. And as I said, turns out probably more than half of my patients did have onset symptoms less than 10 days, so I'm using it more than half the time. Side effects to watch out for, increased liver function tests or jaundice, thrombocytopenia, hypokalemia, anemia, and infusion site reactions.
And I think rather than just run down every study in remdesivir, which I was considering doing that at least I know about, I think I will just summarize it by saying the earlier the symptom onset of COVID, particularly in hospitalized patients, I think the better to use it. Maybe great to use in the outpatient setting, but I just think it'll be too costly and not everybody's going to be sent to infusion centers. The other thing I would say is don't have anchor bias to the amount of days that you have to give it. So if you're giving it as a five-day course, which is what most people are giving, and there have been some comparison of five and 10-day trials, and I don't see any reason to really go past five days, but a lot of people are. So anyway, if you are, let's say this patient gets better on day three in the hospital. What I think is the wrong move, particularly if you are in a bed crunch that so many people are getting into, is to say you have to stay an extra two days to keep getting remdesivir. I just send those patients home after a three-day infusion, and I don't make people stay for an arbitrary five-day course or whatever course that you're using of remdesivir. There's a lot of other things that I don't do in COVID, like rechecking D-dimer levels. I don't know how they help me. And there was recently a study presented at the American Heart Association Scientific Sessions about some of these institutional algorithms and ongoing studies suggesting using D-dimer as a cutoff to initiate anticoagulation. Now, first of all, yes, venous thromboembolic disease, DVT, pulmonary embolisms, strokes happen at a high rate in hospitalized COVID patients. Everybody at a minimum should be on anticoagulation prophylaxis. The question is whether you fully anticoagulate these patients. I don't think that is known. And if you think that you can decide that off of the D-dimer, let me just read you some quotes. So this is actually just released within the last week or two. Actually, I think in the last week. And I'll just jump to the end because I don't think we want to get too far down this rabbit hole. But I'll quote Dr. Madhaven, who presented this, and you guys can find it online. And Dr. Madhaven's quote is, elevation D-dimer values alone should not prompt routine initiation of therapeutic anticoagulation in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Goes on to say that we need to study this more. And the abstract, like so much in COVID-19, is published online early rather than in a true journal because we know how long that takes. But the presentation title is, The Relationship Between D-dimer Levels and Deep Vein Thrombosis in COVID-19 and analysis. But here's my bigger point. So there's a lot of things we can check. CRP, D-dimers, LDHs, ferritins, and does it really change what you're doing? Now I do, as part of just kind of a COVID order set, checkbox medicine, check all those things initially. But just like we know they can be risk factors, my point is, does it change management? Meaning we know obesity in a high BMI is a risk factor. We know diabetes is a risk factor. Being older than the age of 50 and the older you are, the more of a risk factor this disease. Does it change your management? Not usually. Maybe if your patient's 99, you might be less aggressive, but in general, just because they're over the age of 50, it's not going to dramatically change your management. And I'll give you another end of one personal experience from very early in the course of COVID and earlier 2020. So one of my patients came in and we didn't have a ton of patients at this time, but he was on about five, six liters of oxygen on about day two or three. And he explained to me that he has mild autism and just being in this room and out of his usual environment and with all the isolation constrictions and restrictions, 
he just could not handle being in the hospital anymore. So I checked his CRP and it's like 300 and his D-dimer is, I think it was like 22. I don't have it off the top of my head. And our cutoff is 0.5. So all these things were off the rocker and I was just terrified. So I agreed to discharge him, I think on five liters of oxygen. I called him every single day and over the next few weeks he got better. Again, reconvincing me that what's more important than the numbers is how patients are feeling. Now, could he have gone into DIC a week later or two days later? Absolutely, but he could have in the hospital as well. So my point is sometimes shared decision-making is better than going off of purely inflammatory markers and all kinds of other things that may not be justification for keeping people in hospitals. Other things I don't do, obviously, I think everybody's on board that hydroxychloroquine does not help hospitalized patients or probably anyone with this disease. Happy to say, never gave a dose of it throughout this entire pandemic. I never have given convalescent plasma. New England Journal of Medicine just released a study showing no clinical benefit of using convalescent plasma in patients with COVID-19 severe pneumonia. I realize a lot of institutions, including big and powerful ones, are still giving convalescent plasma and people are rooting for it. And I hope it does help in some other studies and show some really major benefit. Send me the data when that happens. I'll probably see it. Don't really need to send it to me. One thing that some of my patients got, not a lot, tocilizumab or just tosi, the antibody that we were using in severe SARS-CoV-2. Well, we were one of the trial hospitals and obviously it really hasn't panned out. I don't know any doctors, even the ones that were pretty gung-ho about it in my hospital that are still using it. In fact, the IDSA, Infectious Disease Society of America, has just recently given opinion not to use TOSI. And that recommendation was updated on November 22nd, 2020. I think we're all calling it TOSI these days, right? Tosilizumab. Real briefly, the IDSA also, in their recommendation, advised against routine use of famotidine pepsid. What I will say in my own practice is I'm trying to avoid PPIs in patients who have COVID-19. And if I'm using something for GERD or I'm worried about stress prophylaxis, I am using the pepsid instead of PPI. I think there might be a trend against PPI in the data that I have read, and whether or not there's a true benefit from famotidine, pepsid, not sure, but if I have to pick between the two and I'm in the hospital or someone I like, including my patients, I am using famotidine. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going against the IDSA recommendation. What they're saying is just don't use it routinely, but they're not saying if you need to use an acid blocker, that it shouldn't be used as far as what I can read from their guidelines. So again, famotidine, probably not a real treatment option, but if you're going to use acid blockers, my own personal opinion, take it or leave it, I'd rather be on famotidine than a PPI in this disease. Okay, this is getting pretty long, and I can say even without my usual attempts at humor and rants, I know most of you who are dealing with this in a lot of cities are really busy and don't have a lot of time to be studying these issues. I just think it's worth getting back to 
venous thromboembolic disease because the question often comes up, prophylaxis or full anticoagulation? The answer is we don't know. You can turn it off now. Let me just say a few more things about it for those who are interested. First and foremost, unless there is a contraindication, all, every patient should be on thromboprophylaxis who has COVID. Okay, which one to use? I'm using low molecular weight heparin because these patients are often hospitalized for a long period of time and regular heparin has a higher heparin-induced thrombocytopenia rate, particularly the longer you're on it, right? The more chance that you're going to get antibodies. And as I said, some things like remdesivir might decrease your platelets as can DIC and all other kinds of conditions you can get into COVID. So I don't want to complicate the issue. If people are already on anticoagulation before they came in for AFib or a history of DVT or PE, I just keep them on whatever they're usually on unless we are planning a bunch of invasive procedures. Full dose anticoagulation is warranted in patients that develop venous thromboembolic disease with COVID, so I fully anticoagulate when that happens. I've already mentioned I don't base anticoagulation off of D-dimer levels. I know a lot of people out there are. That's fine. I don't think you have a lot of data to support that other than to say that these markers like D-dimer and others can be indicators of higher risk of higher VTA rates in COVID and possibly other diseases, but certainly in COVID. But whether that justifies full anticoagulation versus usual prophylaxis, and I have seen all kinds of everything in between, you know, this many milligrams per kilogram for COVID patients of Lovenox or whatever, different anticoagulation strengths, whether you're on the floor or in the ICU. Again, I just can't tell you I have seen good data I've seen a lot of opinion, and they may be better opinions than what I have, and there may even be data that I'm not aware of. What I am aware of is that about 13% of individuals in the ICU with COVID and about 3% to 4% of patients on a medical ward will get venous thromboembolic disease with COVID. Very high rates, not totally surprising in a very inflammatory disease, but probably worse than our average infectious disease, though I'm not even sure about that. But let's say it is. What I can tell you is that randomized trials are happening and maybe we'll have that data before the majority of the population has received a vaccine. Maybe we won't, but randomized trials are ongoing to determine the optimal approach to thrombosis prevention. I don't have very strong opinions. If you feel that full anticoagulation is needed for your ICU patients, I know a lot of institutions have gone there. I'm not saying yay or nay. I think pretty much at this point, it's just an opinion. You know, when I was sent out to a small town in Kansas, because our hospital system has some small hospitals in Kansas, and I was sent out when there was this big COVID outbreak, which wasn't that big, but it was big enough that they need some extra help in a meat factory. By the way, what was interesting in that is that most of the patients from the meat factory didn't really become hospitalized patients. They did okay or worked through their colds and all these things. But what really ended up happening is the abuelos and abuelas, you know, the grandfathers, the grandmothers who these younger guys would live with. And there was a high percentage of people of Hispanic origin 
that did work in this factory. Well, anyway, the young guys, as, as we know, most of them do just fine. Healthy people that are in pretty good physical shape. Not everybody, but compared to the older, bigger, more obese, less active population, if they were bringing home this virus to, those tended to be the ones that would get hospitalized and have a more severe course. Anyway, when I was out there, that's when they were looking at me as the quote COVID expert, which I'm not, you know, um, but that's the first time I even heard like some people were doing full anticoagulation. This was months and months and months ago. And they were going off of a certain university that was suggesting it. And I started looking for the data and saw there was a lot of opinion and clearly saw that there was a lot of venous thromboembolic disease, but just couldn't find any trial regarding this. So again, I wish I had the answer on anticoagulation. Gotta say, a lot of the time, I'm only picking just normal dose Lovenox. That may be totally wrong and proven in the future to be the wrong thing to do. Sometimes I'm going a little bit higher and I can't really justify my thinking one way or the other other than a little bit of gestalt and some sort of feeling for right or wrong that a higher dose of anticoagulant is needed. My only point being is that people that speak strongly or say full anticoagulation or just prophylaxis at normal doses is needed when there's not already VTE present. I think that we are all just trying to do our best on that issue, but none of us knows for sure if we are really trying to go off of evidence-based medicine. Okay, so that's where I am at with this disease and treating it. I know there's a lot of things I haven't covered, but I can't get into every micro topic on this subject. And I know that at least a little bit of what I told you will definitely be wrong. Meaning that as we get more evidence, we are going to have to fine tune our treatments of this disease, which is really true of every disease, but this one hit so fast, so many people without a lot of data to guide us, particularly in the beginning months. Okay, hang in there. You are my tribe. I'm sending you all positive energy, all of you on the front line. I really love you, and I will catch you on the next round.